episode 90 of Milwaukee's Tailgate Baseball Podcast, your weekly Milwaukee Brewers podcast. I'm JP Breen, and joining me today is Ryan Topp because Steve is off celebrating Mother's Day like a good Steve should. How you doing? I'm doing great. I'm fantastic. Went out for Mother's Day on Saturday night with my mom, went to Paisans in Madison, which always good to be able to get back and do that and have the beautiful view over the lake. It's fantastic. Good, man. Is it been had, had me a carbon four uh fantasy factory with dinner? Can't support the sponsor. I would say can't beat it. Well, it was I mean, fantastic. So when you were in Madison, you've been seeing a bunch of stuff about have you been seeing a bunch of people walking around in brewers gear? I we didn't spend a lot of time walking around the city so much yesterday. We were kind of in and out of there and then we were over at my brother's place, which is over on the near east side. So, and then it was pretty quickly to the uh, to Nomads this morning for the Liverpool final game of the season, and uh, then quickly out of town. So, got it. I it was mean, a it was a pretty quick parachute in, parachute out. Though there were a lot of people watching and paying attention to uh, the Brewers game in the thirteenth, fourteenth inning yesterday on Saturday when we were at the uh the great dane yeah that was that was fun i mean i was talking i I was talking to my dad this morning and he was saying it for him right like he's 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 a big brewers fan he watches all the time um but he was just saying it's been so weird that these cub games right now and so many of the games and, and we talked about it last month but so many of these games just feel like you know they have outsized importance as opposed to like what you would normally think of a game in, in May, right? Like it's, it's these cub games, like they split in the first two games of the series where we are recording on uh Sunday afternoon, a little bit before kind of late afternoon, but before the season, uh, the series finale has had an opportunity to be played because Brewers are big time now, Sunday night baseball. Um, yeah, I think first time since 2012. Yeah, it's been like, a w- we got to make the playoffs to get on the Sunday night schedule the next year. It's been a while. Uh, and so he was just saying that these these just feel like big time games. And I mean, to be honest, I, I don't necessarily in my head. I know that, you know, in May, these games don't count anymore as anything else. But it does feel like emotionally like taking tonight's game against against the Cubs would be. A, a good morale boost after, you know, a good seven game winning streak, a marathon loss on on Saturday, being able to turn around and take Sunday heading out of Wrigley. I mean, I think would be a big boost for them. It would certainly be wonderful. I'm rooting for it. I was going to say, and like, well, I would hope so. It certainly would make me feel good. And ultimately, that's what's important. So uh, before we actually start digging into this a little bit, It's important to remember that you can help fans find the podcast by rating and reviewing Milwaukee's Tailgate on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We always want listener questions, so you can follow Milwaukee's Tailgate on Twitter, which is MKETailgate, or you can email uh, uh, questions to milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com, or you can follow our our Facebook page, which has been getting a little bit more love. So we've been checking that a little bit more. We've actually had some Facebook questions on recently, so always feel free. To, to check that out you can also follow the three of us on twitter you'll find that in our milwaukee's tailgate twitter bio and finally if you'd like to support the podcast which we hope you do you can visit patreon.com slash mke tailgate 
our MNB and Ball and Glove patrons uh, receive the mi- uh, the monthly Minor League Extra podcast, which actually just came out this past week. And Ryan, you seem to think it was a good one. Yeah, I thought it was fine. Um, oh, what a, a absol- <laughs> absolutely just a phenomenal review. I mean, I, mostly I was impressed by the fact that this was the first time I had done the editing myself. And I don't think I completely butchered it. So oh, man, that thought... was that was my point of pride was I didn't butcher the edit. That's actually not what I thought you were going to say. I thought you were going to say this was the first time we didn't mention Corey Ray, uh, which I was going to laugh at you. But Corey Ray, three straight games, home runs you were talking about. Yep. Three straight games after we and I'm fairly certain it's the first time we haven't at least name checked him on the, the minor league extra going back to last February. So uh, I, I would be surprised if he didn't come up in some way in any other episode but i don't think we even said the name so i was gonna say ryan will make sure that that is rectified for the next minor league well apparently if we don't say his name he does good so maybe we need to have like a rule on the minor league extra about like the name that won't be spoken like we need to come up with like a code word for him yeah that's absolutely how it works um so milwaukee's tailgate is also sponsored by (laughs) carbon four brewing and their english style malt bombs and perfectly balanced hop grenades you know them for their great beers like dragon flute block party and their flagship fantasy factory ipa which ryan said he had last night for uh celebrating mother's day and he loved it so make sure you go get that some of the current uh spring and summer seasonals that are now available include tokyo sauna pale ale Fruit Punch Fantasy Factory IPA, Radicats New England Style IPA, and you can start looking for cans of America AF Watermelon Kolsch. You can get 20% off merch in the Carbon 4 web store with the promo code MKETailgate. And as always, check out Carbon4.com for more information. Carbon 4, beer brilliance. I can't come close to how Steve kind of closes that, but gave it a go. All right. So Brewers won seven in a row. They swept the Mets. They swept the Nationals. They took the first against the the Cubs in Wrigley before Saturday's, you know, what was it? 15 innings, 16 innings? It was 15, yeah. 15 innings. And and they weren't able to come out on top there. But how do you feel that? I mean, what really drove that seven-game winning streak for you? I mean, it really was about the run prevention. And it's been such a big issue early this season that it it did stand out in those seven games, the seven game winning streak, they allowed 12 runs. And I guess if you extend it to the eighth game, they only allowed two runs in 15 innings there. And really, if you want to say it was more like nine and a half games because of all the extra innings they played, because they literally played an extra nine innings the the previous Saturday, uh, you could, you could do that and it wouldn't be, untoward to point that out so they've done a really good job of of keeping teams off the boards lately and that's that's big and it needed to happen for this team to you know i think a big part of it was just to make us all feel better about tuning in and not watching a slugfest every night and feeling like these pitchers could actually get somebody out and so it's been a real nice turnaround to see that and and yeah, we'll we'll talk about it's being driven by a bunch of different guys, but things are have stabilized at least on the pitching side, and it's very very nice to see. Well, it's it's first and foremost, and I mean we are going to talk about uh, some of the guys individually, but it has been really, it's been it's been interesting to see kind of the conversation uh, completely switch. Right, there were so many good things going going over the course of the week normally and i say normally 
when you go on a seven game winning streak, you don't have people necessarily calling for uh, big roster changes, right? Like earlier in the year, it was a little different because even when the Brewers were winning a bunch at the beginning of the year, everybody was still talking about Kimbrell. They were talking about Keuchel, uh, who, are, by the way, are still out there and, and probably will be until after the draft at this point. Nobody's really talking about the bullpen at all. And and, no, the, and the biggest and thing, right? The biggest thing is is your, you know, you put on the rundown here, right? Corbin Burns back to the bullpen, and he's been decent in the bullpen. But is that just kind of was it that stabilizing force that went in? Is it a bunch of guys pitching well? What do you see as being the big change in the bullpen, uh, if at all? I mean, you can look at at Burns as being something that's mattered. Hater has continued to, you know, have his moments where he gives up runs, and then other than that. Other than giving up a bomb, Josh Hader's pretty much, you know, going to strike guys out and and not get into too much trouble walk wise. Though we did see that a little bit. Uh, Junior Guerra has continued to be good. Uh, Alex Claudio has done, you know, a pretty solid job being used in a you know very targeted way towards getting mainly lefties out. Though he's allowed to face some righties when he's brought in, which does bode well for next year when. Council won't be able to use him to just face one batter unless it's, you know, to potentially end an inning. And then you have to hope it actually does end the inning. So he's going to have to be used for more batters. And so it's nice to see that council is able to do that now, even before he has to. Well, because most of his appearances have been three or more batters. Yeah, absolutely. And I, w- I pulled up some of the numbers here over the past week. And I think the most interesting thing for me to be able to see. Corbin Burns hasn't given up a run. Junior Guerra hasn't given up a single run. Josh Hader's kept zeros up. Jeremy Jeffress hasn't given up a run. Adrian Hauser hasn't given up a run. There's only three guys coming out of the bullpen that have given up a run in the past seven days. It's been Matt Albers, and that's largely been a factor of walks. Alex Claudio and uh, and Burt Smith gave up, you know, he gave up the one the one run on, on Saturday, kind of in a yeoman's performance of trying to save everybody else. And Yeah, you can't hold that against him. No, absolutely. He did not. more. He pulled more than his weight on that effort. So. Yeah, and he worked out of he worked out of a couple really difficult spots before that too. I mean, working through that, it was what was it the previous inning, the fourteenth inning, in which he wiggled out of the the bases loaded jam. Uh, it was, it was somewhere it, in it was there. Either it was the thirteenth or the fourteenth. I think it was the thirteenth. That was when I was coming out of the car and going into the Great Dane, so I didn't see it. I came in and saw that the inning had ended and was like, oh, hey, they got out of that. So I think one of the things that I've been trying to figure out, because I think it'd be big for the for the uh, the bullpen. And we've talked about, you know, you have to have multiple guys that have been that are, are kind of locked down guys. And we've seen Josh Hader be that guy over a long period of time. We've talked about how Junior Guerra has functioned as that guy, whether or not he'll do that going forward, you know, is kind of a different conversation. But he certainly has been that guy. Corbin Burns can be. And Corbin Burns in the last week has actually thrown the ball really well. He hasn't given up a single run. He's got actually a negative FIP over the last week, which, you know, seven days isn't meaningful, but it's still fun to look at. Uh, Jeremy Jeffress, what's your feeling there? Do you feel like he's actually throwing the ball well? He's not getting the ton of strikeouts, but what's your feeling? Because he is keeping guys off, kind of off the bases, and he's definitely keeping them off the scoreboard for now. And if he can return, that's big. Yeah, shouts to Jeffrey Emenecker who asked the question about about Jeffress on this one. Um, 
Yeah, I was so, looking it well, up to kind of. I was gonna say, let me. Get, yeah, I'll actually go ahead and and, and read it. Um, because Jeremy Oenacker oh, says, "Can you comment on Jeremy Jeffress and what we've seen on him so far? Uh, his usage patterns, and if you see him getting back to last last year's form." And so again, that comes from from uh, Jeremy Abenecker on on Patreon. So it was great to get that question uh, because it's something that I've been thinking about too and trying to figure out. Yeah, I mean, so I was digging in on his his velocity numbers and usage numbers because there were some interesting things that had been noted. He came into this year and his velocity, if you look at, and it still shows this way on fan graphs, his velocity shows as being significantly down this year from what it was last year. And it gets a little bit more complicated if you look at, I went to Brooks Baseball and looked at his month by months. And at the end of the last season, he was in October was averaging uh, 95.65 on his four seamer, 95.56 on his sinker. So kind of in the right in the mid nineties there. And he opened this year in April um, at around 92 for both of those. And that was, I think somewhat concerning though. If you move now into may um, that's ticked up his, his four seamers clocking in at, just under uh, 95 miles an hour on average and the sinker is just under 94 miles an hour on average so that's positive to see him get a little bit of velocity back because as much as you know there are other things that matter besides velocity you do need it especially in the bullpen and it it does help like it really is a a help and keeps hitters honest um but maybe the bigger thing is and you've noted this a bunch jp that last year late he basically shelved his splitter, which had been a major pitch for him throughout the meat of the season. When he was doing having great months in in April, May, June, he was throwing the the splitter up to about twenty percent of the time. And by last September and October, he was down in October. He was down under five percent of the time. So he just, for some reason, you know almost completely shelved the splitter, which had been a, an amazingly effective pitch for him. And so far in May, he's back up to 19.15% of the time. So he's back up to using that splitter about 20% of the time again. And that to me indicates, you know, that there's some confidence in that pitch. And we had speculated, I know that perhaps he was worried about injury that because the splitter does put quite a bit of, of pressure on your elbow. We wondered if he might, you know, not be feeling the best. And that was part of the reason that uh, he had, he had gone away from it, but he seems to to have confidence in throwing it now. And that I think is big going forward for him, especially if he does end up throwing a few miles an hour less than where he was last year, which is kind of where he's at right now. He's kind of a, a couple miles an hour below his peak fastball velocity. So having the confidence to go to the splitter would be big to potentially offset that. I think one of the other things to to kind of think about when you're looking at Jeremy Jeffress is he's been throwing it a little bit better as of late, which is good, but he's still rocking a 130 batting average on balls in play. And his swinging, like his whiff rate, like his ability to actually miss bats, um, so not a strikeout rate, but on the percentage of swings, how often does he get a guy to swing and miss uh, is down quite a bit. It's only at about 8%, which is well below the league average. It doesn't seem to me that it's a huge recipe for long-term success if you look at what his numbers have been over the the course of the entire season. Uh, Velocity's down a little bit. It's not really missing all that many bats. His batting average on balls in play 
super, super crazy low. Even last year where it was as lowest by a lot, right? It was about 249 last year. It's about half of that right now, which is crazy. And his he's not getting ground balls really at all. Uh, his, his ground ball rate's only 37%, which is way different than his 57% uh, percent career average. So it, it's, it's different. Um, I don't necessarily think that this means he's going to be awful, right? I don't think it, it means that he is fundamentally broken in some ways. What I do think is there have been positive developments in the last couple of weeks where you can see the velocity is coming back a little bit. You can see the confidence with his pitches are coming back a little bit. And I'm encouraged to see if he can continue to build as as the summer months come in, as it gets warmer. You know, is he going to be able to kind of let loose a little bit more? But the underlying, yeah. the underlying numbers aren't great. No, it isn't. And yeah, it, to your point, he's rocking a, a 522 DRA right now. And that is, you know, that is not scream sustainable uh, production when you're looking at that and comparing it to uh, his ERA, which is 1.8. So he's either going to have to pitch better than he has been and especially generating more swings and misses. And as you were saying, more ground balls uh, or more runs are going to come, but at least I, I think I had my big concern coming in was, was he going to be healthy? And I think we've seen that those indicators are positive so far. He looks like he's, he's in fairly healthy shape at this point. So if he could continue to sort of grow into the season as he's been doing of late, maybe they can, they can get him to not have to suffer such a major regression just because he does become a better pitcher throughout that time than what he was maybe at the very beginning. And his usage patterns too would indicate that they're not totally sold on because he didn't come back in and immediately get thrust right into high leverage situations. They've sort of eased him into uh, pitching in, in big tight situations because I think they have some questions too. And maybe they didn't want to push him as fast and hard as, uh, as they possibly could to just see where he was at. Yeah. Because they're not sure either. Yeah, that's fair. I, I do think, Guerra gives them a little bit more flexibility in what they can do with that. Albers has actually been pretty good over the course of the year thus far too, which which helps. And now Corbin Burns coming in and being a guy that can pitch those high leverage multi inning spots is also helpful. But I think it's it's right to know or right to notice. But the the, the biggest guy I think who's been a little bit I don't know if surprising is the right word, but somebody that we didn't necessarily unless your name is Steve didn't expect to be able to lead the rotation this year is Zach Davies has been great he's got a one he's got a one five four ERA and 46 and two-thirds innings thus far what's your feelings about uh about old Zach other than the fact he was pitching what was it Friday against the Cubs and it was like upper 40s and windy and he's out there with short sleeves he doesn't need anything he's ready to go yeah. I'm I'm amazed he he didn't just like float away on the <laughs> from the mound at that point uh, yeah, I mean, he has done some really impressive things this year. His after the 18 inning game last on Saturday night against the Mets last week, his performance where they ran him to almost 120 pitches, and I'm 
very certain that's the most councils ever let anybody go uh, in in his tenure as Brewers manager. And they needed it. They needed it in the worst way. They needed Zach Davies to to go out there and give them innings and just do that. And he was up to the task. And that's that was sort of a an eye-opening moment for me personally, going, man, he really he really stepped up in that case and and showed that you know he wants to to be a bell cow for the rotation this year. Well, I which think I think the most they need one. <laughs> they do, and I think the most interesting thing for me about that, in general, if somebody told me that Zach Davies was going 120 pitches, I was like, well, he doesn't, he's not a max effort guy. That's not all that surprising. But you are dealing with a guy who had extreme shoulder issues last year. The fact that he was out for the better part of two months, and they must feel pretty good, and he must feel pretty good about his shoulder if they're going to be going that far. But what I will say to be able to defend Zach Davies a little bit. When you're saying that you're surprised he didn't just like float off, and I'm talking about how he was able to deal with this kind of cold weather. He is from Washington. Right? He's got the big old pine tree tattoo. Like he's he's from he's from a place he knows how to deal with the cold a little bit. All right. That's fair. So it's a do, fair point. Do you know what uh a baseball reference has as his nickname? I do not. He's Bat Boy. <laughs> okay, that makes a hundred percent sense. I mean, I, <laughs> I I made that joke when I attended his major league debut with the Brewers uh, back in what was it sixteen or whatever, and uh, or fifteen, whenever yeah fifteen, and uh, I made the joke that you know it's really nice that the Brewers let a bat boy go out and <laughs> and pitch on the mound like that's that's nice in a lost season like this to to just kind of spread the the wealth around and it's gonna be really big for him to get those uh, those big league paychecks. <laughs> It's, but, uh, I will say it's uh, underrated trade that Gerardo that Gerardo Parra Zach Davies trade. Yeah, that's it's been a weird one because uh, the players they sent out to for Gerardo Parra have turned out to be really pretty good. Uh, Mitch Haniger has been, you know, uh, an all star, right? He's yeah, an all star level player. But he's yes, though he's completely changed as a player, and his swing has completely changed ever since he left. Right? Oh no. It's a fair point. And also Anthony Banda, who had established himself as a pretty legitimate top prospect in his own right before the injury bug bit. And so he's been missing some time and trying to reestablish his value. But he was those two players were sent out. But getting Zach Davies back on the other end of that certainly takes a lot of the sting out of that because Davies has been super important to the Brewers and uh as far as this year for the rest of the time, I mean, he, you are looking at a guy 154 ERA this year, but a 414 DRA. So right now he's obviously, and I, I don't think I'm breaking any news here to anybody that he's almost certainly pitching over his head in terms of run prevention. But at the same time, and you time, should expect to see that regress back. But at the same time, 414 is still above average. 414 is still above average, and it, it's it's substantially above average. It's not just you know, a tick above it's uh, it's a good 10% better than average. So we have to adjust to the, to the league park factors and all that. And Davies has done a good job. And remember Davies has faced the tough lineups, just like everybody else in this uh, in the, in the pitching staff has, though maybe he's had it a little bit easier than some um, in that he didn't have to face the Cardinals in that first series. Cause he started the first road game and all that, but he's had to face tough lineups as well. And he's come through it really, really well. And I, 
I shudder to think where they would be at this point if Zach Davies hadn't done what he's done. And even if for the rest of the year, you know, say from here on out, he puts up like a four ERA, um, he's been an incredibly important part of this team. And hats off to him for what he's done to keep them uh, afloat while they were dealing with some massive pitching issues early in the season. And and I will say a four ERA again would still be above average for the course of the year. So if he were a mid rotation starter for the for the rest of the year, that would that would be excellent. But when you're looking at kind of the rotation and what has changed over the last couple of weeks in which they've started to pitch quite well. It is notable that Gio Gonzalez was added. It moved Corbin Burns, and Gio's pitched really well. Yeah, and I think, you know, we were both somewhat skeptical of his ability to come in and be transformative. That we thought, yeah, this this could potentially help, but that it wasn't likely to be the the move that saved the season. And, you know, so far, he's been he's been as good as you could have possibly hoped. And he's actually, in, in terms of, so you're looking at a 1.69 ERA over his first 16 innings, uh, but he has a 290 DRA. So there, it feels at least a little bit more sustainable you're talk- in that sense. You're talking about, um, you're talking about 16 innings, man. Let, let's it not, is 16 innings, let's, so it's, Let's yeah. not go nuts on that. So, but it, I, I do feel like Geo has some things going for him that, can potentially allow him to be uh, useful in the long run. He does have this this long run of being an inning eater, at least until last year when it got a little, it was a little bit shakier because of uh, the the switch from Washington to Milwaukee, and then he didn't you know pitch right away from Milwaukee. But he's really put up a, a pretty solid number of innings and has done that, which was something you know the Brewers were so sorely lacking and if he can do that at a you know average to even slightly above average run prevention level then yeah he's he could be a a really valuable piece of the rotation and maybe this is what allows corbin burns to stay in the in the bullpen for the rest of this year uh i'm still not to change the subject from burns or from from geo to burns but that would still somewhat disappoint me I'd, i'd like to see them continue to give burns chances but maybe that is not what is best for this team maybe that's best for the long term but that's not best for the 2019 brewers and so compromise might have to be made there between doing what's best for right now and doing what's best in the long run i mean what i will note about geo is what he's done for the first couple of starts with the brewers is he has not really walked anyone and that's really out of character with him uh, in terms of his his long term production over the course of his career, he's got under he's walking under seven percent of batters this year. He's never been above he's never been below seven in his entire career, and his average is about ten percent. So it it's a guy he's a guy who once in a while gets into trouble because he's got pretty good stuff. He can miss some bats. He's he's clever from the left side. He can do a lot of good things, especially against lefty lefty heavy lineups that guys try to actually you know opposing managers try to avoid that but he gets in trouble because he gives up walks and he gives up homers and he hasn't done either of the latter two things this year all that much he's well below average his his career average on those things so i would expect those things to go up no matter what you know kind of dra says and 
but he's he's what they needed. You know, when they were going through the struggles in the in the rotation, whether or not it's great for long term development for everybody, what they needed was stability. And he was able to come in and be that guy that, as you said, he can take the ball every fifth day. He can go five innings at least. And they needed somebody to be able to come in and do that, not give blow up outings. And so one of the guys that is actually kind of we've debated quite a bit and has given up some of some of those blow up outings has been Freddie Peralta. And we actually got a, a question from Patreon from uh, Adam Post. And he was saying that Freddie Peralta pitched well last time out, which he did. And they employed the opener, which we talked about briefly because we knew that this was the plan. And so Adam's asking, did it have anything at all to do with using the opener? And and for full context, Adrian Hauser went the first two innings of that of that game. Right. And Hauser actually was not super sharp, but he did keep them off the board and did set up a situation where uh, Peralta actually came in, even though it was only two innings, Peralta came in and faced the uh, the 11th batter of the game. So the second batter in the order. And so I'm not sure, I guess, to, to, to that point as to whether or not that made a big difference, because one of the main benefits of using the opener is that you throw a a starter or you throw a, a reliever who's going to come in and just let it fly for an inning and he'll take care of the first three, four batters in the order, which nowadays is teams do load their, their best hitters right up front like they should. So that then sets up the starter to come in and face the first time through the order, um, quickly getting more into the back end of the of the lineup if it all works out correctly. And that wasn't the case with Freddie. Freddie basically started here with the top of the order. I mean, it wasn't the leadoff hitter. It was the second hitter, but he basically started with the top of the order. And so it was kind of like he started, except he was, you know, two innings late. It was a, it was a weird situation and not really the classic opener thing. And that's the main advantage of, of using the opener is so that the, the starter doesn't have to face that first group of batters, until they're settled in basically until they've gone through a, a rotation of the lineup and that way they don't have to face them to settle in. they can settle in against, you know, a softer part of the lineup and then not see those guys until, you know, the second or third inning. Uh, so I don't know. What's the theory here, Breen? I mean, what would it be that would have made the opener an effective strategy instead of just something that happened here. And I've struggled. I thought about it for a little while this afternoon and I couldn't come up with a good explanation. Maybe you have something, but I, I didn't come up with anything. Well, I think it was one of those things in which they kind of wanted Freddie Peralta to start down at the back end of, of the lineup. They wanted Hauser to try to go, you know, two innings if he could, which therefore would have started Peralta down kind of the seven, eight, nine guys in the order. And then it would have allowed him to miss the kind of the first six. So the second time through the order is going to be later in the game. And then it allows them to get to their back end of the bullpen a little bit more. I think the issue, and this has been my issue with, with the idea of the opener for a long time, even though I think it makes a lot of sense in theory, is what happens if your guy at the beginning doesn't pitch all that well? You've got. Well, issues, we saw right? that uh, against Colorado the week before, and granted, that was an emergency situation. But uh, Jacob Barnes uh, put them out of the game in a hurry, 
and they were kind of scrambling from then on for the rest of the game to try to prevent runs. Yeah, and and in general, your opener works well if you can get a guy to come in and absolutely shut it down, but you're also not going to bring one of your shutdown relievers in to be an opener because it's not a high-leverage spot. So in that way, it is really interesting. Uh, I think Freddie Peralta in general kind of benefited not necessarily from seeing guys in a different order or anything like that it was the fact that he was able to throw strikes which you know you can get from freddie peralta in any any given outing i was much more interesting that they went to hauser for two innings and i think it was because they really wanted peralta to start uh late they wanted him to start kind of the seven eight nine guys um i i don't remember that for sure i didn't actually see that game um for for various reasons um but that would be my theory is that they wanted him because did uh, when looking at that game, you did have uh, Adrian Hauser, you know, he he's faced the first five guys. And so it could have been if if you wanted Freddie Peralta to start against the, the latter half of that of that lineup, you would have actually started him in the second inning when he would have been facing six, seven, eight. Um, Which is why I think that their plan actually was modified, probably. And they were my my guess is they were going to go more tandem starter in that game. And they were going to let Hauser potentially, if he was pitching well, maybe pitch four innings, maybe even five, something like that, if he was going well. And then bring in Peralta to to kind of clean up and and finish things up. I think they were going to let him go longer and. It just the fact that he wasn't pitching well, that Hauser kept putting runners on and was having was struggling, that they pulled the plug early on him and said, Well, we're just gonna go to Freddie now. We've gotten through these two innings, it's scoreless, we survived it. Let's see what Freddie can give us and see what's gonna happen there. Yeah. That I, would be my guess, is I, that they they probably were actually intending Hauser to go longer, and it just didn't work. Yeah, I think that's probably right. And the reason why I think it also was that way is uh, the Brewers actually used four relievers the day before as well. And so it was something that they probably didn't think that they had absolutely everybody in the bullpen. If you go Hauser and he only goes an inning, and then Freddie Peralta comes in, walks the world, and he's done in the third inning, and you've got a bullpen that you know, half of them were used and you've already burned Hauser. You're struggling to get to the end of the game. And so I think they really did want Hauser to go a little bit longer and get through the order once. If that was going to be two or three innings, you know, I, I think they probably would have liked it to be the latter. Ended up working out well. And that's and that's just fine. And one of the nice things, too, is we got to see Brandon Woodruff continued. He's been pretty good form as of late. Yeah, you look at his last 16 innings over three starts, and he's got a 169 ERA. Uh, he's really been keeping the ball in the yard. And 22 strikeouts and three walks, which is quickly becoming – he's kind of quickly becoming a a FIP darling in that way that he's doing a really good job of keeping a really nice K-to-base on ball ratio. And so – Which is what matters, right? I mean, it's – it's a big part of what pitchers do. There's a lot more than that that goes into it, but it is a big, you know, it's a, it's generally a pretty good indicator that you have something in a guy. If he's doing that and maybe the run prevention isn't there, it often guys often catch up to the, uh, as they figure out, you know, a few other things they need to do to, to keep runs off the board. 
but it, it can be a, a sort of a leading indicator of that. And even in this run, if you look at it, he's given up a 421 uh, batting average on balls of play. So he isn't even getting particularly lucky with with hit luck. He's guys are getting on on him. He's just striking out so many and and shutting them down. Uh, otherwise, that and not walking anybody that it's working for him. So I mean, I think I, I mean I was gonna say for me though, it, one of the most interesting things and in kind of you know we can talk about how Brian Woodruff has really turned it around and and yeah you know that's really great but what has really been poor is after starting off his first four games um he got a hit in, all, in his first four games he's only got one hit in his last five outings that's a problem man his, i mean his he bat- really should spend some more time in the cage to address that right like his, that's a his, that's a thing that you need to address and and work on look you can make fun of it all you want his batting average is threatening to fall under 300 well we can't have that i mean that would just be super disappointing look i don't i i don't appreciate the sarcasm i i think that uh brandon woodruff being uh a, dude he was hitting he was hitting a thousand for his first three games with an with an OPS over two thousand, that was that was that was my favorite part of the start of the season. Um, okay, so we've talked a lot about a lot about the pitching staff. Uh, you know, rightfully so. We talked a lot about Keston Hira on our minor league extra, right? So if you want a little bit more of an extended talk about Keston Hira, what to what to think about what his pathway is to to the big leagues, you can take a, a look at that. Or take a listen to that. I guess you can look with your ears. But we do have a question from Jason Spitz on Patreon. And he said he hates asking this about his wife's uh, favorite brewer. But how much longer before there's serious consideration of giving uh, given to sending Travis Shaw down in favor of Keston Hira? Related question. Can Hira play any outfield uh, because he'd like them to stop pretending that Thames is ever a viable uh, outfield option? Okay. Can we can we work backwards first? I, as far as the Thames thing, Thames is not a good outfielder. And I think everybody understands that and knows that. But I think there is value in being selective and getting him out in the outfield at certain times when to get his bat in the lineup. When you can do it in such a way that you maybe can get him uh, a couple plate appearances late in a game when you're, you're trailing or you, you otherwise really need offense. I think there's there's value in that. So I, I understand that it's never going to look great, but there is value in having him able to take a glove and go play out there. And he makes you know the routine plays pretty well. It's I know that this probably comes in reference to his his adventure in uh, at Wrigley, where he came charging in on a ball that he you know really should have been able to make a play on and didn't. But I, I think there's value in that. But He's got uh, a, moving on to the actual. I was gonna say. Oh, yeah. I was gonna say. Thames has a great smile out there, though, and that matters. <laughs> and I mean, he he looks like a right fielder. He's got the the upper body of a right fielder, and the he you know he can throw the ball hard enough, and so it, it, like that works. It's just you know he doesn't really run that well, and you don't really want him running that much because that can be dangerous in terms of. Uh, you know well, him getting re-injured. Which... I was gonna say he's had he's had hamstring issues. He's had leg issues. He's talked a lot about ever since when he was in Korea um, playing ball down. I don't remember what team he played for, but when he was playing ball in, in the KBO, 
he was saying that he learned that his body was was tough and he needed to take care of it more. He needed to stretch like for hours a day. He needed to go through a lot of, you know, and he said being in, in Korea where he didn't speak the language, it was really helpful for him to take the time to be able to do these things. But he he's talked a lot about the fact that his body needs a lot of maintenance. So making him run, we saw in his first year here in Milwaukee, that was a problem. And he ended up like not only kind of coming down after a brilliant April, uh, but he's been he struggled with injuries over the course of it. But I mean, do you think that Kira could play any outfield? I mean, it was something that was speculated on. If you did, I would say because of the concerns about the arm, because of the fact that you do have a guy who uh, you don't necessarily want loading up and throwing, I would think he would be pretty limited to left field. And especially, I don't think the arm strength is fantastic. So you generally want a plus-plus arm in right and a solidly plus arm in center just because so many of those throws are going to be significant. So I I don't know. I don't know how much he's even, to my knowledge, he hasn't even worked out that much out there. So I don't think that's in their their immediate plans. Uh, And if it was... If they were if they were seriously thinking about it, we would see more about him getting time in the outfield already. Has he played an inning of outfield this year? I'm trying to look something else up right now. This but. this year, no. But when he was actually coming up, and there was a lot of debate, right? So he was coming. He was at Cal Irvine, and everybody was like, "If it was bad alone, this dude's one one." If it was, if it's about the ability to hit, there were question marks about his elbow, sure, but there were question marks about where he was going to play defensively, and and so many people said if his arm is healthy enough, he can probably play second base, and that's fine. But there was actually a lot of speculation on whether or not he might fit in center, whether or not he could play left field, but that was all dependent upon you know his arm being healthy enough to be able to handle it, and I don't think that that's really something that the Brewers want to mess with, especially if. I think if if he had gone through Tommy John surgery, if he had gone through that, they had addressed it, he had gone through a long rehab process, and then they wanted to be able to mess with it, maybe. But I think as of right now, he's a second baseman. I think that's exactly where he's going to stay. I think that's probably his best best path going forward. And to be frank, he's he's, you know, not a plus defender at, at second base either. He's he's fine and he's passable and with his bat, you know, more than acceptable. But that's not something that I really want to mess with. Uh, that's just me, and I don't think that the team has any any desire to to kind of make that elbow issue potentially bark and be worse. Yeah, that would be my that would be my guess as well. So what's so, so what's guess, the what's the issue with Travis Shaw then? Yeah, getting getting back to Shaw um, since those back to back games in St. Louis where he hit some bombs and looked like maybe he was coming out of his funk. He had three home runs in two games. Um, it's been bad in 57 plate appearances. He's hitting 120, 228, 160, 18 strikeouts in 57 plate appearances. It's troublesome. And you obviously to have him in there, you want more power than that. You expect more power than that. He's shown more power than that. So, and he has reference to, there've been some discussions of him, you know, he he does feel it right now and does feel like he just doesn't quite have uh, everything together. And 
if you're looking for something positive to hang your hat on, which is usually where I'm at, right? Try to find something positive. Well, only when I, it's about the Brewers. If it's not about the Brewers, you're absolutely not interested in finding anything positive. <laughs> hey, I look for positive things about my other sports teams as well, Breen. Oh, so. good. Yes, good. Yeah, that that's that's the answer. Uh, but if you're looking for something positive, he does have the seven walks in that time. He is putting up a reasonable, it, it, like you can't say that his plate appearance or his plate discipline has completely evaporated here. He is still continuing to work counts, and it, it seems to be more of an issue where when he gets his pitches to hit, he's not driving them more so than it is he's gotten himself into a. Uh, a, a you know a downward spiral of approach problems. Uh, it, does that seem right to you? I I think for me it it just his timing is completely off. I'm it does it's not clear to me that he's really seeing the ball that well. The one thing when I first got the question when I was first reading Jason's question I was like no there's no chance, absolutely no chance that Charlie gets sent down. But the more I think about it because. They showed that they were willing to do it with Arcia last year, which is interesting. But the big thing that really hits a flag for me, or like it is a red flag for me, I guess is a better way to put that, is when Travis Shaw is is telling the media, is being very, very clear that he's struggling, uh, that he feels like he's struggling, that he just doesn't feel right. You know, sometimes guy you know it's as much of a mental sport as it is a physical sport in a lot of ways once you're getting to the level in which everybody is physically talented right uh, mm-hmm. in, in the minors you can out physical you can out physical guys you can just be just a better athlete right we've seen and we see this in so many other sports but when you actually get to the big leagues and you're dealing with guys who are all premium athletes or at least have premium skills if you're sitting there and and unsure of what's going on your confidence is down you're consistently pressing uh right now they're trying to give him some time off but at some point we talked about this in terms of Corbin Burns when he was sent down and I was saying that that council at some point need we need to remember that he's dealing with human beings and he's not just dealing with you know aggregated stat lines and while it would have been nice to see somebody like Corbin Burns continue to be given shots to, to, to kind of overcome what's happening, to work through his issues. If Council felt like he was in danger of losing him, like mentally, then he needed to get sent down to kind of give him a break. Uh, I don't necessarily know what that is, but I do think that there is a decent argument for Shaw. If he gets to a point in which he feels like he's pressing so much, he's in his head so much, that he just needs an opportunity to go somewhere where not everybody is looking at him every single day and he's not having to answer questions from the media every single day. There's an argument for that. I don't know what that point is. I'm I'm not in I'm not in, in, you know, the clubhouse or whatever. But when Travis Shaw is actively giving interviews in which he's telling you know, he's telling Tom Hodricord, he's telling Sophia Minaret, just being like, Yeah, I'm kinda lost. Like I don't really know what the issue is. Um that's that's a problem. And it's not saying that he's suddenly a bad player, but sometimes you just need a mental break. Um, and if that right now they're trying to do it during the Cubs series because they've got three lefties scheduled to start, John Lester will be going tonight. But at some point, if that goes for too long, you need to give him another area to do it, right? Like for in any other area of life, 
if you're struggling at your job or you're just like mentally having confidence issues or in school or whatever, we always say, you know, put it down, go away for a bit, like go on vacation, uh, go for a run, go like, just take your mind off of it, forget it, come back, see it with, see it with clear eyes. Maybe he does need that. I, I would think that it probably wouldn't be for a couple more weeks. Um, if, but I mean, at some point, they can have well, I mean, we have precedent for this, too, with this team. They did it with Corey Knebel last year. I think it was a very similar situation where he just didn't feel it. And, like, there wasn't any particularly good reason to think that he was permanently broken or anything, but it just wasn't working in that moment. They set him down for just a little while at the end of August, brought him back up, and then, hey, it's all good again. And, you know, he was a monster down the stretch. So... I think that there's a you know there's a good call for that that it's it's possibly a thing that they could they could look at but like you I don't think it's imminent I don't think this is something you would do until you get into June at least because I mean but what you do is you you it's all based on Shaw it's based on Shaw and his mental state it's not based on like giving him a chance to work through it right I mean if you feel that Shaw needs time off and that's in two days, or if that's in two weeks, or if that's in the middle of June. Like, if it calls for that, you give them it. I don't think you say, like, no, you have to stick here for two more weeks because we have to give you a, sh- you know, we have to give you a fair shake. I, you, that could be, yeah, okay, that's, that's fair. But I think they're still going to see if this little break that he got this weekend is going to fix it. And I do feel bad. I think that what they wanted with, uh, with Saturday's game was to get him just a, you know, a pinch hit appearance, get him in the field, get him back on the field a little bit, maybe see if something good happened and could get his confidence up a little bit and get him feeling good. And then the game goes 15 innings. He had to have four plate appearances and he walked once and struck out three times. And that can't feel like he's made any real progress, you sure, know, but I mean, at least from a results perspective. Yeah. I was going to say, to be fair, a lot of people struggled during that 15 in a game, um, which uh, I want to get to one point about Hira. Um, but uh, first, that game on Saturday was awful. <laughs> like, I, you, mean, I you, you don't like cold weather games played in front of flocks of seagulls. <laughs> no, it was just like. There were upwards of 40 base runners and three runs scored. Well, and I mean, a big part of it was the Brewers just kept hitting into double plays, which is like every inning in regulation, especially when you did you the, see that that was the um, National League record for uh, double plays. But when you put the ball in play, that'll happen. That's not weird. Well, usually when you put the ball in play, it doesn't go right to a fielder who can then make a nice play play on it or I mean, and a lot of times it was a lot of them were room service double plays they weren't even yeah there's play. there's certainly but there's certainly batted ball luck that is involved in that i'm not arguing that but i'm saying that when you do put the ball in play particularly on the ground you are always making that an option you are setting it up and hamels was had that stuff working yesterday where he was getting ground balls so that was you know cole hamels wiley veteran really was doing well with that yesterday i because of the way that i am about this stuff i was inclined to be more well they're getting runners on they weren't just you know falling apart in front of the the cubs uh uh pitching they were actually i think they had leadoff runners on in like six of the nine innings in in regulation yeah yeah they just 
didn't get anybody in because they kept hitting into damn double plays. Right. Well, I'm not talking about like, does this say something about their offense? I just mean in terms of like watching it, it was shit. Oh, sure. Yes. It was like, I was very glad I did a drive to Madison in the middle of that game. So I watched the beginning and I watched the end and I was glad that I only listened to the middle section of that game. Like it was aesthetically one of the worst games I've watched. It was just, it was like, oh good. We're in extra innings. Somebody's finally got the bases loaded with one out. We're going to get out of this and uh, nope. We're gonna we're gonna play more. Oh, good. Next inning, we have a leadoff walk. Thank God, somebody just like end this stupid thing. Uh, nope. We're gonna continue until we get to the fifteenth inning, and Bert Smith is gonna throw four innings and get out of however many. It was just like anyone who talks about like just put the ball in play and put pressure on the defense should have to watch sit and watch the whole game <laughs> of that. I don't want to hear it because that really is. That's the, you hear that a lot with people saying, just put the ball in play, just put the ball in play, stop striking out so much. And it's like, well, <laughs> that, that can often end very poorly. So yeah, it's like a cure all. Right. And it's just like, they're like, well, you know, you have a lot of bad things that happen if you rely on, on the home run, because those things don't always happen. And if you're completely reliant on that, and I was like, yeah. And if you're completely reliant on stringing together three singles and a walk to be able to do anything, that's Especially tough. in 2019, that's not a way to play the game in 2019 with the ball flying out of the yard. Well, and, and, and with, just in terms of like guys being able to position their infield because they know where you're going to put the ball in play. Well, and because pitchers are striking out more batters than ever. So that's like you can you could say we want guys to strike out less, but you're still looking at guys who have pitchers throw better strikeout stuff than they used to. That's a, a big well, some of this is approach in terms of what batters are doing. But a big part of it is just pitchers are a lot better than they used to be, and they will strike people out uh, a lot more easily than they would have 20 years ago. So it you have sort of a confluence of events going on there what? that are, are all working together to give us this current form of the game, which, you know, I get it. I would, I would like to see a little more variance. I think this is the Meg Rowley point she always comes back to, that it's nice when teams will play different styles just to have different aesthetics. And if everything becomes so homogenized and everybody's sort of playing the same brand of baseball, that that does get tiresome and that does get boring. Yeah. But that's fine. But if you want to be like the Royals and be able to put, you know, absolute pressure on the defense because you're going to be running all day, that's one thing. It's another thing to try to play station to station baseball by putting together walks and singles. But it doesn't even the Royals. It doesn't even particularly work that well because. Well, but now there's only so much it's gonna. I'm talking about. I'm talking about a few years ago, right? Oh, Um, sure, sure, sure. Yes, and they did. They did try to play that style, and it was kind of a breath of fresh air in the midst of. And it was effective. And it was it was effective. It was effective. It was effective. Yeah, it was effective because they had good pitching, good defense, and they didn't strike out very much. And and they were able to put together, you know, and they were able to still walk, right? But um, I, I was going to say a big part of it was that they had hitters who could drive the baseball. They weren't big on home run power, but you had a bunch of guys who could drive the ball uh, in terms of getting doubles and triples yeah. in that park. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's why we always talk about like, can you make impactful contact? Contact, right? It's not drive just the baseball hard, yeah. where people can move multiple bases, yeah, even if it's the batter still only going f- to first. Uh, if the if the runner is able to go from first to third or from second home real easily, that also has value. You want to be able to 
drive the baseball and not just make weak contact. Yeah, but so I want to get back to 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 Jason's question here before we end up uh, kind of signing out here for the week. You've got this situation where hypothetically Travis Shaw sent down here it comes up. What happens when you deem Travis Shaw to be ready? Are you like then sending down Hira? Are you like fig like what's your solution then? If it is meant to be something temporary, I was going to bring this up before when you were you were talking about it because that is another problem, and it's I don't want to make too much of this because it's going to sound weird, but like there but is a chance that's, that's never that stopped you bring you up Hira and he's too good for your overall strategy to like work here where if he basically forces his way into the lineup on a daily basis and you've now got five, actually it would be six infielders for four positions. Uh, they're already trying to make this work with, with Thames and Aguilar at first. If you have essentially six uh, starting quality infielders for five positions and none of them, other than one, are capable of playing shortstop. We talked about this on the minor league pod. That can be a problem because what do you do roster-wise? You have to have Hernan Perez on the roster right now because he's your backup shortstop. You don't have anybody else really capable of playing shortstop. So, other than obviously Arcia, who's starting. So, well, and then you, you get into situations pretty quickly, right? Yeah, and you get into situations where it's like, well, oh, well, the obvious obvious man out is is Thames. Well. Jesus Aguilar hasn't exactly been tremendous. So there are still question marks there. Um, there are a lot of things that end up having to go into those things. So, and as we're going into uh, another new week, right? We're getting out of getting out of Wrigley. What are you looking forward to this week? Um, I haven't even looked at the schedule yet. So <laughs> I don't know. That was, that was not part of my preparation for this episode. So the, the, the part of your preparation is not necessarily thinking about, you know, what's going to be coming up in the future here for the team. So <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't part of my preparation in this case. So allow me to, uh, no, no, no. so I got, I got you. Don't worry about it. So they're going to be going to Philly and then they're going to be going to Atlanta. So it's a couple of really difficult, uh, you know, they're going to have four games in Philly and then three games in Atlanta. So it's going to be a tough week and they don't have any games off or anything of that sort. And so getting out of the kind of the friendly confines and going and continuing a long road trip against good teams in the NL East. What, what cons is it kind of the old cliche of like, if you can hover, obviously they can't go 500 because it's seven games, but if they can go three and four, is that is that passable? Is it just about making sure it's not an absolute train wreck? Yeah, I mean, for this road trip, if they go four and six overall on this road trip, and they've already got the one win banked, uh, that's a perfectly acceptable road trip. That's that's fine. You're playing good teams. You're on the road. It's an extended run away from from Miller Park, and yeah, I I wouldn't have any issue with four and six. Um, I mean, even three and seven isn't disastrous. That's not ideal it, it gives back some of the ground that they've made up but you know you're going to have that this year with how stacked the nl is there just aren't a lot of like really easy games that's just not how the 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 uh the league is set up this year so and i mean with the emergence of arizona now as another legitimate i think at least a solid club i, I are we at that point where we're ready to say arizona is a, a legitimate 
uh, fringe contender? Uh, no, but that's okay. I mean, I'm saying like a team that can be around 500. I don't. Ca- I don't consider that a contender, but sure, I, fringe contender in in today's game. If you look like a 500 team on paper, you're a fringe contender. Sure. If if that's what you want your bar to, I if some if you're saying somebody's going to be around 500, I'm not considering them to be a threat for the the wild card. Well, not necessarily a threat for the wild card, but at least a team that can hold their own and they're a, not a, a team, punching back. Right. But that's sure. We're talking about different things, but that's fine. Okay. You, but at you, any you, rate, th- you think there's Arizona's really only okay. two punching bags left in the NL. It's amazing. It's the Marlins and the Giants. Other than that, everybody's got somewhere between a good team and a an, an interesting squad, a team that can can give you trouble. And so there just aren't a lot of soft spots on the schedule to to rack up, you know, easy wins where you just, you know, maybe, you know, the Padres of last year or something like that, where you just go, yeah, you could go in and, and think hey, sweeping these guys isn't going to be, you know, a crazy, a, a crazy ask. Yeah, well, and it's, um, it's it's a team, it or it's a it's a schedule this year in which you do find yourself, you know, sweeping the Mets and sweeping the Nationals, but those things aren't the norm. You have to be able to take advantage of them when you can, because there are going to be multiple, either road trips or series in which you potentially are going to be swept because you're playing good teams, and you're not going to be able to take advantage of this thing where you're going to say like, you know, can you win eight series in a row? Or something like that. It's just there's going to be too much. You have to take advantage where you can. You've got to go through hot streaks, and you've got to maximize your one win, your your kind of one run win ratio, uh, one run win ratio. God, that was that was rough. Uh, so you're going to get into spots in which you've got to be able to take advantage of all this all the things, which is why I think you know games like Sunday night here against the Cubs feel a little bit like they're more of outsized importance because they're against your rival, they're against somebody you're trying to to compete with in the NL Central, and Basically, every game feels like it matters at this point. And also just, you know, to hell with the Cubs. Well, yeah, I mean, that that, <laughs> that goes th- without saying, does yeah. it? I think that's a great way to end. So we will and maybe we'll even make that our uh, kind of our title for this week. So I that, was, I mean, it was going to be that or pitcher Palooza. Well, yeah, I think to hell with the Cubs is probably better. So that's going to do it for the show this week. Uh, you can... Always join our Patreon by visiting patreon.com slash mketailgate. Patrons at the M&B and Ball and Glove levels receive the monthly minor league extra podcast, which we've uh, referenced a couple of times here this week. Uh, but you you can also follow us on Twitter at mketailgate, and you can submit questions to milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com or through our Facebook page for Milwaukee's Tailgate Baseball Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, Pocket Cast, wherever you listen to your podcasts. We should hopefully be there. And if we're not, bug Steve. And you can leave reviews and help people find the podcast. I, I haven't, uh, I'll be honest, I haven't necessarily looked for reviews as of late, but that's always Steve's thing. He likes to see the reviews and see, you know, where people give us five stars and then like make fun of us. Uh, so if you, we would love it. Give us five stars. Try to help other people find the podcast. Uh, and then you can tell us what you really feel in, in there. And if it makes Steve laugh, he'll always include it in the podcast. So thanks for listening and look for us again next week on Milwaukee's Tailgate. And I promise next week we'll have a professional leading us and not me. Steve will be back. So we'll see you then.